Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Tina. Hi. Tina is here with us today to discuss her experience working as a nurse, and in particular, working as a nurse during the last couple of years, during which we've had a pandemic that has made that job drastically different, I imagine. Um, there's no like uh, small way to start this, but how's that been? Yeah, I think um, we're at um, we're at sort of this very interesting uh, cliff right now, um, in which a lot of people are going to stay in this profession or uh, go. Um, so it's it's quite an interesting moment, I think, for healthcare in general. Um, not only nurses, but you know, physicians are feeling like you know maybe they went into the wrong profession as well. So I think we're we're in a really interesting kind of reset moment right now the pandemic has definitely like exposed some things about how uh workers in various fields are treated and thought of uh no i'm sure you could speak on this if you so chose (laughs) um well you are a teacher uh (laughs) but uh Tina, you may not be familiar with this bit. We try to go as far as we can into every single episode (laughs) before my job gets mentioned by name (laughs) That was pretty good. A minute and 30 seconds seconds is not very far. Yeah. No. (laughs) Teachers have Um, had it hard. But but today's episode is not about about that. Today's episode is different. (laughs) Yes. What what are some of the changes that you've noticed besides the obvious, uh, Tina, as far as like what your job entails and, you know, how you feel about doing it, I guess. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I've i been a bedside nurse in the emergency department uh, for 22 years. And, um, you know, at the time of the pandemic, I jumped into a leadership role. So that was, uh, that was quite a quite a change. Um, but actually, I think it, it really was um, beneficial, just because um, I think one of the things that are that we're challenged with right now, and we've always been challenged before uh, the pandemic, is just understanding what the worker actually does, um, and having that sense brought in. Um, and so during the very beginning of COVID, um, actually a couple weeks in uh, near the end of February, we were, I was hosting a training for highly infectious pathogens. And we were doing this sort of donning and doffing exercise. And, um, you know, we had started to hear little rumblings about some virus and, you know, staff at that moment were a little bit lax and sort of, you know, not really knowing what to expect. Um, And then fast forward a month into it, and we were facing multiple changes on a daily basis where, um, you know, one workflow today was different, you know, four hours from now. Um, you know, the idea of sort of workarounds became what made everyone very resilient. Um, you know, we didn't have PPE, we didn't have supplies. So, um, 
you know, as, as people complain about workarounds um, and how dangerous they are, um, for me during this time, it actually showed a form of resiliency for the workers that I think was really instrumental in keeping at least my, my crew, my staff safe uh, during, this, during this time. Yeah. Now, just out of curiosity, did you happen to catch COVID at any point during the pandemic or? Um, So, no, actually, I I did not. Um, I did not. I still have not um, caught the COVID. Uh, But in the very beginning, there were a few of us that, you know, had not felt very well and uh, ended up not testing positive, maybe because of the testing at the time. But yeah, nope. That's just the luck of the draw. Nothing special. In those early weeks, there was a lot of um, uh, talk uh, of like nurses were being treated as heroes in many mm-hmm. ways. And of course they are and always were, but did, how did you feel about all that sudden attention on your profession and like some of the narratives that were going around at that time? Cause there was sort of a hollowness to a lot of that rhetoric, at least from our perspective, but you as the center of it all. Um, how, how was that? Yeah, I think, you know, it was um, from the outside, it was amazing, right? So in New York, they were clanking pots and pans all day long. And, um, you know, we got so much food um, uh, given to us during our shifts, but, you know, none of us could change out of our PPE to eat it. Um, and we were quite frankly afraid a lot of times to, you know, take things off to go and, and take a break. Um, I think uh, one of the things that sort of put at this moment in time, it's sort of, we always sort of knew and, and, and nurses in general aren't selfish people. So they don't take a lot of, um, accolades very well. Um, and I think everyone knew kind of, um, well, I think everyone had hoped that it would continue, but knew deep down that it would likely be something that fizzled out pretty quickly. People don't have stamina to <laughs> to exert that much uh, care for others. Yeah, I, uh, obviously, um, after like the very initial lockdowns in March of April of 2020, over two years ago now, there was uh, a pretty, I mean, sudden and then gradual and then sudden and fits and spurts pushed back against the idea of doing anything against the pandemic. And uh the idea that we should continue distancing and masking and even vaccination when it came to that. How, how was it to see all of that knowing what you knew as a nurse on the front lines? Yeah, I think, you know, many of us for months, like didn't go home to our families or when we did, we were sneaking in a back door and, um, you know, not having much physical contact with people and, um, my, my daughter put up this sign from like the 1940s. It was one of those like women, you know, like help us out, you know, Rosie, the riveter type nurse thing that was like, you do your part and we'll do our part. And it was sort of like, okay, cool. Um, that lasted for a short period of time. Um, and I think, you know, we were really excited when the vaccines came out, we were, we were hopeful that that would sort of um, and a lot of the work and a lot of the suffering that we were seeing um, and were, you know, regardless of whatever your stance is, we were pretty much um, left with that bag. So now we're dealing with two sides. You know, we're dealing with people that we have to care for who are 
potentially putting my life at risk. And we're, we're talking with people who are very fearful. So, you know, it became this sort of dance with whichever patients you were taking care of that I think led to a lot of people just being super frustrated and, and not sure where to go with that and those feelings. I want to expand a little bit on that last point, because that's something I don't put this that that's kind of the unique experience, right, of healthcare workers in particular. Like you have a duty to your patients to explain what their options are, and um, I know that just today Missouri made it illegal for pharmacists to tell people that ivermectin is not actually effective at treating COVID or hydroxychloroquine and all that. Like you've got this desire to just kind of like stick fingers in ears and so on, and obviously that that's a huge source of frustration. Um, I guess my question is, to what degree did that become, uh, given what we're going to be talking about, to what degree did that become a source of, that frustration become a source of productive energy? Like, uh, not necessarily in terms of doing your job better, but of identifying what the issues are, uh, what the causes are, who is responsible for this, and maybe being able to push them to do better by, by their workers. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're talking about the complete fracturing of society in many ways, right, right now. And, and, and that's just aside from healthcare, just, I mean, I want to say the words, um, but I'm going to hold off on some expletives, but you know, it's, it's destroyed so many things, right? So we're talking about don't wear a mask, but you can control my womb. Do, you know, there's so many different, like, everything. And I think just for people who go to work every freaking day, because they want to go to work, right? I want to work. I want to take care of patients. I love my profession. The profession of nursing has raised up tons of people um, into higher economic states. It's given people opportunities. It's done a lot for this, you know, for people, for women, for men, um, for minorities. It's done a lot. And I think that, um, you know, aside from the destruction of our country, um, this profession prevails in many different ways. And I think, you know, like I said, you know, the innovation and workarounds to survive through this, the, you know, the stamina that people have to really want to make a difference. You know, uh, there's, I think you were kind of alluding to something, some of the work that I've been doing and the, some of the things that keep me going to work every single day, all the time a lot is this idea of making things better we've really like leveled the healthcare field right now we've leveled it and no one's going to admit that but healthcare is leveled right now and we really we're we have an opportunity to rebuild this is very very you know pie in the sky thinking i'm sure but you know we we are so close to the to the this massive change that is either going to go one of two ways. So either administrators are going to just keep what they're doing right now, and we're going to lose a ton of people, and we're going to lose a ton of people in the future. And, you know, I don't want to go to a hospital and have a robot taking care of me. I want to be able to talk to somebody. And, you know, and then who's building that technology? And are they even looking at what the work actually is? I mean, there's a whole human factors uh, piece of that that probably won't get considered. or we can do the opposite and um, look at sort of, you know, we haven't said the word in this conversation, the word burnout, right? Because I think that's what we're all saying this is. But I think actually the word burnout is a, is a, 
it's sort of a blameful word. Like I'm too weak. I couldn't do it. So you could do it, but like, I'm just pathetic, right? I burnt out. So I'm done. And I think if we start thinking about this as trauma, (laughs) trauma to a system, trauma to the people, um, there's some healing that's allowed to happen in that space. But there's definitely not healing allowed when you tell me I'm burnt out because I'm done. I'm going to shut this off and move on. I, I think that's a particularly striking point given how it's something you're allowed to say. You're allowed to say that you're burnt out. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to talk about it, even if you're coming from the point of view of, um, in my case, it would be a school administrator, but you know, people who put workers in a position to be burnt out, who don't support them enough to help them, you know, be able to uh, have that resilience mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So I, I think that's a very good point that it, it, the the word choice even is kind of controlled in how you talk about these things to kind of make people still feel like it's their fault for not being able to put up with it. And as you said, you know, nurses are not selfish people by nature, obviously, you know, it, it's, I, I can't imagine there are very few professions where that would be more of an impediment to you doing your job properly. But that, in particular, you know, it, it it it's a it's a ground it's fertile soil for causing people to blame themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that, and um, I hope the language starts to change. <laughs> now, I- I'm curious because you have stayed in the field throughout the pandemic, but as we've talked about, uh, many nurses have not. You know, it's been this all of this has caused a lot of people to leave nursing. Um, have you heard anything from like nurses you may know who've left the profession and you know what they were feeling and you know what what are their thoughts on this? You know? Yeah, I think there's um you know there's part of this that I um you know there was always since I was a nurse 22 years ago this talk of like this great you know wave of nursing leaving right that you know nurses started this profession many years ago and those were all going to retire and we were going to be left with this huge gap right and um you know depending if you decided to go into tech or you realized that that was not long lasting and you changed your career and went into nursing. Um, it's a good profession. Um, a lot of the people that I'm talking with are, are either leaving critical care and going to, you know, lesser uh, sort of impacted spaces. So some have stayed within the profession, but are, you know, working in an eye clinic or, or working as an advice nurse on the phone where they're not um, day in, day out facing multiple changes and, and having to adjust and adapt with the same sense of fear and the unknown, because this has been a marathon, it's not just been a short, you know, blip in the, in the, the time frame here. I think a lot of people are feeling hurt. You know, they're feeling uh, hopeless in some ways and, you know, not willing to take that risk anymore. Like I've put my life on the line for two years plus, and, and I think, you know, we all recognize that life is really, fleeting, you know, we've seen a lot of people die. And, and, you know, I think there have been a couple of nurses who decided to just go travel and say, screw this, I don't need to do this anymore. It's an understandable response in a way, but then naturally, the aftermath of that is going to be shortages. And, you know, where, where does the field go from here after two years of this, and it's not over. 
there's going to be more years of this. Yeah. I mean, it's scary to think about, you know, even uh, we were talking about recent um, nurses that have just graduated. So they went to school during COVID and they actually um, haven't actually touched patients. They've been kept out of the the hospitals a lot of times. So they're coming into this field without that connection, um, which is really makes for an interesting um, dynamic, right? We're losing older nurses to retirement. We're losing nurses who have been in there, you know, five to 10 years and decided to walk out. Um, and now we have new people without that support. And, you know, that, that poses some risk. Um, and it, and it does change how we do things. And, you know, likely technology will fill in a bunch of, uh, the gaps, um, you know, in the next few years, you know, to deal with these shortages. Any other final thoughts before we end this segment, sort of just in terms of your experiences uh, over the last couple of years and, you know, what you've taken away from it, maybe? I, I, I will say that it's, it was an experience that provided me with a moment or not a moment of, you know, years, couple of years of just absolute love and camaraderie with people that we were suffering, but every day we'd show up and just a quick look at each other or just, you know, we're in a huge amount of PPE walking into a room and just that sense that I can, I contact to say like, I got you. Um, we never lost that. Um, we kept that. And then, you know, the other thing is, again, it's like watching people be innovative and creative. And those first few weeks of COVID, I was, you know, I was the educator at the time. And I was in a room with physicians and nurses and technicians who were like, let's build a barrier. Let's, you know, like, when we have to intubate someone, let's, you know, what can we do to protect ourselves and people just spending hours of like, how do we how do we address these things? Because not that the hospital ignored it, but they were not quick enough in some cases. And so people were just wanting to really band together. And I think that I will never have that experience again. Um, and that's something that I will always sort of, that will keep me motivated to, to move, move this needle in the right direction for healthcare. When we come back from this brief break, uh, we'll be talking a bit more about, you know, some of the, uh, hmm. I guess, side effects of all of this, uh, some of the other um, ways nursing has been impacted in recent months. Uh, we'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Tina. Hi. I, I'm so used to saying Lou's name in that spot. I'm sorry. <laughs> the the um, dangerous of streets. Yeah, she's missing. Yeah. Yeah, I had to stop myself. In this segment, we're going to talk a bit about uh, you know some of the impacts that have been felt in uh, the profession of nursing in the recent months. Um, we talked for the first 20 minutes of the show or so about uh, the Tina's experience in working through the pandemic and uh, dealing with all of that. It's a lot. Um, but uh, something that you uh, put on our radar, Tina, was this case in um, Tennessee of a nurse who was being 
charged with a, a crime after you know an accidental death of a patient. Um, do you want to explain for the listeners what all happened there? Yeah, so this case actually happened, I think, in 2017. So this is a nurse um, at Vanderbilt um, who, um, through through uh, sort of many different um, systems issues, ended up um, giving uh, the wrong medication to a patient um, who subsequently died. And she alerted her, you know, her boss, her supervisor, her doctors, you know, everyone about um, this incident that that occurred and was, you know, through the hospital channels, which I'd love to talk about how we deal with uh, adverse events in our hospital systems. Um, but through that uh, sort of process, lost her license and was fired. Um, and then a few years later, about maybe a year and a half later, uh, the case was reopened um, for criminal prosecution. So she was prosecuted and then today uh, was sentenced uh, to three years of parole. So um, the judge had some really interesting things to say in regards to, um, you know, that she's no longer able to work with patients. So therefore, the risk would be, uh, you know, lower that this would ever happen again. Now, this was something that the idea of her being charged, you know, criminally for this was something that drew the ire of you and I'm sure many other nurses. Uh, do you want to just go into why this was uh, something that you felt was worth discussing? Yeah, I think um, so. There's going to be different, you know, different um, responses to this. Um, you know, nurses are outraged because they feel like, you know, it's usually not a particular person that it's usually a system that causes these errors and that errors happen all the time. Um, and this, this criminal prosecution really, um, you know, there've been articles about nurses leaving the profession because they're afraid that they can't speak up and, and, you know, we can go into psychological safety and the corporate, you know, structure of trying to make all the workplaces safe by letting you speak, but not listening. Um, the, the thing for me particularly is this idea of blame and more from the patient safety perspective of, yeah, great. She's off the street. She's never going to practice nursing again, but is that error going to happen again? Did you fix what was happening, um, within the system so that, you know, my family member doesn't go into the hospital and the same thing happens. Um, so it's how the hospitals, for me, what's outraging me and making me sort of concerned is this idea of blame being sort of the end of it and um, not really focusing on uh, reducing this event from occurring again. Yeah, it's it's scapegoating and, and personalizing instead of dealing with actual causes, which is a thing that happened a lot, weirdly, with all of the categories of workers that were found to be heroic during the pandemic, you know, when they didn't want to continue being pushed into the meat grinder, when they asked for, you know, things to just help mm -hmm. them not catch the plague. Suddenly, all of those designations went away, whether you were working in a hospital or school or grocery store. Mm -hmm. suddenly it was yeah you're you're not essential anymore if if you actually want to you know continue living so yeah uh, no 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 surprise there to desystematize <laughs> it 
Yeah, I think it goes back uh, uh, even, you know, further to just, you know, healthcare in general, and sort of the beginnings, right, the history of healthcare in which hospitals were sort of in this hierarchical religious, you know, uh, creation, you know, hospitals were tied to, um, you know, that and there's a sort of idea of blame. Um, and um, to me, that's sort of been kind of a, an interesting takeaway that maybe things haven't changed um, as much uh, in, you know, in modern days. Um, you know, I think I, I've listened to a couple of your episodes about, you know, human resources and things like that. And this brings me back to um, this idea of like checklists and audits and what you do when an error occurs. And um, one of the things that they use a lot in hospitals is root cause analysis. You know, it's just like, why did this happen? You know, tell me why this happened. And usually the response is, well, they didn't follow the policy. So there you go. That's, that's the answer, right? And for me now in sort of a leadership role, I wonder, well, well, did the nurse even know there was a policy? And was that policy, did that even make sense to them? And is the policy even reflecting what's happening uh, in the department? Because to me, that's where, that's where the change comes. That's where the psychological safety comes. That's where all of the, the sort of meat of what will help, you know, continue to prevent injury. Uh, You know, that's the kind of the crux of it. Um, There's an ABC news article I came across about the, the sentencing in this case and the fact that there were nurses, protesting outside the courthouse as she was being sentenced. Um, And, you know, something that uh, one of the nurses in the article says is that uh, because of this, uh, quote, nurses are going to go to the jail and more people are going to die because they won't report their errors. Uh, As you said, you know, the nurse in this case immediately, you know, explained the error. And I'm sure there are some wondering if she hadn't done that and, it could have been blamed on a system instead of just one person. She might not be, you know, on probation now, you know, there's, there are some adverse incentives there, right? Oh, I think for sure. I think nurses are right. You know, they're not going to report and there's tons of studies in, in the patient safety or, you know, safety itself in, in that um, sort of realm that if you don't find the errors or you don't learn about them, you can't prevent them. And, um, you know, the last thing we need right now in an environment where people are leaving and we're trying to recruit people um, is a feeling of not being safe in your workplace. And I don't mean like tripping and falling. I mean, like being accused of a crime and being prosecuted and sent to prison. That is not um, going to help save my profession of nursing at all. It's not going to actually benefit healthcare care um, at all. Yeah, and and from a purely pedagogical point of view, well, not even, just sociological, you reward or you get the behavior that you reward. And if you make it, as we've just said, you you make it a bad idea to report the mistakes that you make, then, I mean, I, I think it follows pretty logically, but the last two years have proven that basic logic is not a thing for a lot of people. So, It's just going to make it, yeah, nurses won't report their mistakes because they will suffer the consequences uh, uh, that we've enumerated here that Radon Vaught did. Uh, And there's no actual reward for honesty there. 
which mm-hmm. is theoretically the thing that you want. So the, there's a lot of, of stuff at odds there. That's that's not good from, I would imagine, any kind of healthcare perspective. Absolutely. And, and you know, they're right. I mean, the nurses have a right to be upset and to, um, you know, walk out of work and, and do whatever they need to, to make this point. I, I think even today, watching the sentencing, any of the nurses that um, spoke on her behalf, on Redonda's behalf, had said, we just want to fix the problem. Like, you know, great. But like, did we fix the problem? And I think just as frontline workers, and not just nurses, I think physicians, too, are like, right now suffering a lot, because they're noticing all of these pebbles in their shoes every day. And they're just like, can we just fix this? I want to go to work and do my job. (laughs) But you're making it impossible. Um, And you know, it was really interesting how even one of the nurses at, uh, during the sentencing had mentioned that she had made an error. And immediately I was like, I've heard that error happen before. Um, and, you know, it has to do with the packaging of a needle that why don't we fix that? You know, why don't we look at that versus, you know, make the nurse, you know, get on her knees and pray for forgiveness. Um, just from a from a selfish standpoint, it makes my job easier. let's just fix the problem so I don't have to deal with it again. Um, Yeah. In your emails to us before we uh, put this together, there was a a line you said about uh, this being sort of, um, I'm going to paraphrase, the the symptom of like a society that punishes error. You know, Mm -hmm. right now putting this woman on probation or in prison, if that had been the outcome, isn't going to solve the problem. It's not going to prevent it. You can't undo a death like this. It's a tragedy, obviously, but prison isn't going to uh, prevent future ones beyond what's already been prevented. It it just, there's, um, and there's a parallel, I think, in that to so many other aspects of society. I mean, the big news of the last couple of weeks has been uh, that the Supreme Court plans to overturn Roe v. Wade. And w- one of the talking points uh, you know, on the left in response to this is that abortion bans don't actually prevent abortion. They just prevent safe abortion. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, in some cases, you know, there are people who for whom that's the point. It's not about actually preventing the so-called harm of abortion, but about punishing those who do it, about putting people in jail and making it less safe for them. That's spot on. I mean, it's, it's, we've come to this. I don't know whether it's just the untethering of everyone's uh, collective stamina to deal with life in general. And like, it just feels better to just point the blame, punish someone and move on. You know, I don't like something. So now I'm going to blame you and punish you and get rid of you. Um, this is, you know, the idea of blame, again, like I said, is similar to my thoughts on burnout is like, that's the end. You're just you're done. I blamed you. You you go to jail, you beg for forgiveness, but I blamed you and, and that resolves everything, but it doesn't at all. It, it actually just leaves open so much. Um, it just will continue that 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 problem will just persist. And I, I think we could also point to, you know, discussions around our social safety net when it comes to this thing, because, you know, there are so many people who are quick to say that the people who are poor and suffering and homeless and 
you know, whatever might be afflicting to them, you know, something went wrong in their lives where they deserve it. You know, they must be punished, you know, uh, whatever small error they may have committed must be punished with suffering. And the idea that we can simply have a society that uh, doesn't punish mistakes and errors so harshly is anathema to many people. Yeah, it's because it takes effort, right? Because you actually have to connect and get to know that person and figure out like, what was that, you know, and who wants to, who wants to do that? Um, I mean, we've, we're now living, we're now living with, you know, sort of forced isolation at points that have just created this, you know, everyone is in their own little, little bubble. And, you know, I don't need to get to know you. It's just, you're, you know, you did something wrong, you deserve that. Um, And that's something that, you know, it's gonna, it's just gonna continue if, I don't know, it's gonna continue. And, and worse yet, you combine that kind of like continuing economic precarity with the fact that we have a country that just like the thing that most offends a lot of Americans is the feeling that someone somewhere is getting one over on them, that someone is getting something that they're not getting, even if they don't think they deserve it either. Um, and you combine those two things and you've got a recipe for a bunch of people that like will fight to the death to prevent others from enjoying anything nice. Like, um, I've, I've gotten less pushback on this since the pandemic, but the number I, I work in a non-unionized workplace Mm -hmm. and I've gotten less pushback than I used to, but a lot of my selling point has been that we need to realize that, you know, we deserve nice things. Like we deserve better treatment than we're getting. We deserve this. We deserve that. And if I can get through that, then the rest is much easier. But if I can't, then nothing will stick. And there are so many people who are convinced that the only way to get anything is to con someone else out of it or to, you know, play whatever trick it is that that allows you to get around it. I mean, that's the crypto crash that's happening this week is that there there's so much stuff in this country where it feels like even honest people feel the need to pretend or to to copy those mannerisms to persuade you of anything and you feel like you're getting sold things constantly you combine them with the fact that prices are going up and people can't afford stuff and and whatnot and yep it, it's a recipe for a, a, a kind of social disjunction that ends up in just everybody and in, in just a giant 300 million people circular firing squad yeah, it's almost like a pre-apocalypse, like we, gen, I don't know, evolutionary-wise, we we set ourselves up for the apocalypse preemptively. Like, yeah, things are going downhill and there's like, you know, bad things happening, the environment's screwed up, women have no rights anymore. But um, we're not quite there yet. And I think that, you know, we are and we have been acting like this is, you know, an episode of The Walking Dead for the last couple of years where we have to like, get what we can and kill one another and, and turn against one another. Um, you know, we, we kind of did that too quick. We, we went to that very quickly in the society. We didn't even, we didn't even make it a year. We like, Oh, like a couple months in. And this is the same thing about, you know, the nurses being heroes. It's like, you got like two months in and then you gave up. And this sort of is, um, you know, it's a really, um, this is a really scary thing. Now, nursing is one of the few professions in the U.S. where there are a lot of 
unions. Unions have been decimated throughout manufacturing and every other area of society, but uh, in teaching and nursing, I think we have uh, the two professions left that are still predominantly unionized, or in many cases, unionized. Um, and one thing that we're seeing you know, crop up in recent months and really over the last year or so are these uh, strikes in various uh, hospitals and healthcare systems by nurses who uh, are feeling that um, that trauma, as you described it, and are demand change. You know, instead of uh, picking each other off and saying they deserve this for one reason or another, they are banding together and coming up with the solidaristic response of, you know, we want better. You know, we think a better thing is possible here. I grew up where my dad was a teamster and he had his union card. And, you know, that was that was a big deal for us being really poor. And that actually helped us um, quite a bit. And not, you know, just because of, of the selfishness, but for him, for safety, he worked, you know, construction. He did a lot of things. So, you know, I've always felt like unions had a place in our country and in developing things and in keeping workers safe. I, you know, I'm now on the other side of this. I'm an administrator, but I can tell you that go for it. You know, like it'll give me hell for a couple of days where I'll have to work extra hard or a week or two weeks, whatever it is. But um, I think it's, I think now for nurses and all healthcare professionals, I even think maybe physicians might want to get in on that. But I think, you know, they, they right now have, have, have a really strong, need uh, for that change and questions like what is going to happen to my profession in the next five to 10 years and how are you going to support it? And I think that as someone on the other end now, I want to be able to answer that question for them. Like go, you know, go for it. I, I, you know, I support them and unions a hundred percent. And I also support the solidarity that it brings to other unions and the strength that it brings to other um, smaller unions within healthcare too. Uh, just to give one concrete example, uh, there's a there was a recent strike at Stanford Hospitals in California uh, by nearly five thousand nurses, according to this NPR article. Um, you know, calling for more staffing, more support for their mental health, which I'm sure you can imagine why both of those things. Uh, mm-hmm. it, staffing has to be the big concern in so many places at the moment, right? Staffing's really hard and it's not, um, and I do have to say it's not for a lack of trying. I think that people do not want to go into this profession right now. I think that um, people are, who have left, you know, the experience is gone. They're not recommending. <laughs> no one's like, I hope all my children become nurses, although I still kind of secretly do. Um, I I don't think there's that part of it anymore. So one, I think is the future and recruiting. Recruiting is really hard right now. Two is I think people have picked up so much overtime to, to um, make up for this, for the shortages that they are also like, I just want to work very little and go home. I want to do my job, but I don't want to put in these hours anymore. Um, so again, we have to be creative with how we address the, the nursing shortage. It's not that there's a thousand people lined up waiting for jobs. I mean, you know, in some cases, HR is a mess and it does take forever for people to get hired. But um, I think just 
in terms of the the actual people and the workers, it's going to take a lot of work on people to um, entice and recruit. And, And there is a concern. I think that's a legitimate concern that they have. On that note, I think we might end this segment. And then when we come back, we can talk a bit about what a better world for nurses might look like. You know, how can we improve all of this? We've laid out all the problems. What what do we do to fix it? We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Health. And Tina. Hi. Um, We spent the first 40 minutes or so of today's show talking about uh, nursing. Tina has been a nurse for 22 years and uh, had to do so during the pandemic, which had massive impacts on not just her, but the field as a whole. Um, And as always, I'm Punching Out. We try to end on... A positive note. We try to look to the future and find something that could be better. Um, and this is a field where there's a lot that could be better. Uh, Tina, uh, what's something that jumps to your mind as far as how do we fix all this? Uh, yeah, I have a big pie in the sky wish for uh, some things. And like you said, um, you know, there are a lot of things that can be fixed. One is just how we respond to blame, like how we respond to error, I think will absolutely change the landscape of healthcare. So if we could, um, you know, start to really look at the why, not the why didn't you follow a policy, but more of the why did you make that choice? Why were you forced to make that choice? What was going on? Right. So um, I think we're vulnerable right now in terms of you know, technology may be taking over a lot of things. I think we're vulnerable right now, just mentally and physically. So um, I would start with sort of adjusting how we respond to, um, you know, adverse events in hospitals. That would be my first. I got another one. Um, The second part of that is bringing in this idea. um, I'm not, I've been reading a little bit about it. I'm not a huge um, expert on it, but One of the things that happened with that case today was um, the family had said, I just wanted her to say sorry to me. And, you know, the hospital was concerned about risk and all the legal things that come with this uh, type of event. And so the family and Redonda Vought never got to talk to each other, right? They never got to connect and she didn't get to say, I'm, I'm sorry. And they didn't get to hear that from her. So can we bring that into our healthcare system when things happen? I don't know. But that for me sounds like uh, going back to our our last thing about the pre-apocalyptic society we're living in. I I don't know. I hope that we can get to a place where I can just go straight to you and you can come straight to me, right? Instead of just shooing people away. That's a hope. I don't know. We'll see what happens with that one. And then I think it's, being transparent and not, you know, I think we're all corporations in many ways. And I think using the like cliches of, 
you're amazing. And how can we kudos today? Like, you know, required kudos Tuesday or whatever it is, or like, you know, we require you today to give a kind message to someone else, like not doing any of that, just stepping completely away from that kind of like corporate required uh, forced happiness and just giving people a chance to like be pissed off um, to not call them burnt out, to recognize that people have suffered a trauma, an actual trauma, um, that's going to take some healing and just kind of like see where the cards, (laughs) see where the cards fall. That's my hope. Yeah. I I think all of those are like, they'd be steps in the right direction. Um, for sure. Cause there's going to, at some point have to be some sort of, um, reckoning might be too harsh a word for it but like the opportunity to reflect on what has happened the last two years hasn't really happened Uh, there has not been sort of any moment to pause and consider what we've all been through Um, nurses Mm -hmm. least of all uh, I mean because in many ways you're still fighting the pandemic Uh, you're still facing it nearly every day I'm sure uh, it's so much of society has moved on already. Uh, COVID is over. They've declared and they're going to act as though it doesn't exist, um, you know, more so than they already were in some cases. Um, and so I, I think just that the lack of an opportunity to even talk about the, the things you're discussing, the, the trauma, uh, is going to be an impediment to um, addressing them. Yeah. I think people are trying to talk about it. I just think it's, it's gotta be very smart and mindful, you know, how those conversations happen and hopefully, you know, people leading those conversations are leading them from a place of, of healing and not blame. Right. So you could talk about it, but don't judge me. Just let me be. Yeah. I, I think that's, from personal experience, I think that's going to be the problem. You, you've got a lot of, you've got a lot of people that didn't have power over their circumstances, um, in, in many different environments. And, uh, then sort of, you know, being blamed as you're saying, being judged for not having the resilience or the grit or whatever it is to, to make it through all of this, to be able to remain mentally healthy when the world is going to hell. Uh, every single moment, and I've I've seen people who had an active hand in in doing this to people who had an active hand in making people feel unsafe and uncomfortable and unable to do their jobs normally and all of that have a really hard time accepting that it it was their responsibility to stand by their employees. I mean, one one big thing we always say on punching out is that. The, the problem with a lot of bosses is that they hate doing their actual job. They, uh, the job that's on their job description, you know, the leadership and all that, they love doing the control and the having power over people. Uh, but they hate that part. And you really got to see it. Like I've seen it in person and I know from others that they've also seen that mask come off, no pun intended. And it's, I mean, it, it's the idea of having these conversations has to, they have to be led by the people who got put into the grinder without 
any ability to affect their circumstances beyond, you know, the individual decisions that they took each day. Uh, because otherwise, I think you're just going to get things are going to get flattened and, and reduced and minimized. So people can kind of avoid feeling bad that, you know, essentially they, they got people sick. Yeah. And how, and how ill prepared, I mean, we can go into like, you know, poor bosses and, and, and how, you know, many times they just get rewarded and what is it? You fail upward. Uh, you know, so now you're like the ultimate leader. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm, I don't want to be naive in, in some of the stuff, but what I found is when those conversations come from the workers, when, you know, when they have those conversations together, when they have those conversations to people who, you know, have been through it with them, I, I know that those situations don't exist in any, you know, many places. Um, and I, I mean, that's the thing, right, is I would hope that, <laughs> like I said, the leaders don't give this lip service and make this a requirement, you know, that that taking some of these people that have been through this and moving them into leadership positions, hell yeah, let's see what that looks like. You know, let's, let's move some of the people that are, that are suffered, you know, and let them try and lead with a different, a different way. Let's try it. I mean, I think that that's, you know, something that is worth, is worth a try and worth experimenting with. Now I'm, I'm curious uh, with you having said that, uh, over the last couple of years, have you seen th- things where it, it seemed like the p- decisions being made were not uh, necessarily coming from the people on the ground, the people facing it head on and instead being made by higher ups who didn't experience it day to day, who didn't know what they were doing in some cases or didn't know what that was like? Yeah, um, I think part of my trauma from this is that um, and this isn't speaking generally, I'm just speaking all about me. Um, I recognized early on that I had to shield everyone from that. So my, my job was a shield. I, you know, I got the information from the people that were making the decisions. And then I did what was best for my team and, you know, pulled the hundred and some odd nurses into, into, you know, pretty much every decision we made. Um, because I, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't face these people if, if I didn't give them that. And so, you know, I personally had a hard time during this because I, I went completely against <laughs> everything that was in my, you know, role and scope and, and what I was supposed to be doing and probably still will get in trouble for it. But, um, I think if you ask the, the team of people that I work with, they would be able to tell you that, um, they got that opportunity. And this was a mini experiment in some ways that if you give people the opportunity, you know, we didn't have a mass exodus of nurses. Um, we had nurses who stayed and kept working and wanted to make things better and every day had an innovative idea. So this is like completely, you know, not the norm probably, um, but it's an experiment in how changing that landscape of leadership could make a difference for people. I think if there's any sort of hope to be taken from the last year, it's the idea that uh, we've seen the ways in which um, when the people who are actually affected and actually facing the problems, uh, 
we've seen that when they get a say in how things are done, things get done better. We've seen instances of that. Uh, and we've seen clear examples where that has not been the case and things have gone terribly wrong. Um, I think having just a clear model for what that looks like is something that's going to be helpful going forward to say these people are capable of making decisions, even though they aren't getting paid like the people who are getting paid to make the decisions are. Yeah. And the people that are getting paid to make the decisions will likely complain that they're not getting paid as much as the other. (laughs) Um. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. It's, you know, it's the idea that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm stealing this from someone, but, you know, the not having people who look at the work as imagined, not, not, but, but understanding the work that's done. Um, I think if that can just be a motto for every place, you know, every type of job from a grocery worker to, you know, the president, I mean, it's just, if you understand um, the work is done, that makes a huge difference. I think what ends up happening in a lot of these cases is that, and and I'm also stealing this. It was a friend of mine who said it, but basically that in, in any of these professions where what you need is a highly skilled professional, somebody who knows the job front and back, who's been doing it for a while, uh, understands how to do it correctly, and, and maybe even has the capacity to kind of mentor other people on how to do it. Um and and really any job is that that's the thing you know all labor is skilled labor but that the best thing you can do to create a good workplace is to find people who are good at the thing you want them to do and then trust them to be good at that thing instead of constantly waiting for them as we've been saying to make a mistake or to do something where you can drop the hammer on them and that is so completely antithetical to how american <laughs> work culture works That you can't even like begin to imagine a different world in that regard. And it's, it's kind of ridiculous because we know that that doesn't work. We know this from, I mean, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of pages of literature and ink and electronic ink and, you know, computing power and whatever has been spent on proving this. And we just refuse to break out of this like classist and, Honestly, a bunch of other is sexist, racist, ableist, 19th century mindset that if you're the person on the assembly line, uh, well, number one, that you should treat your workers like they're the people on the assembly line. And then number two, that people on the assembly line are, you know, basically automata that you just order around and, and tell them what to do and they have no real agency in that regard. And I mean, I think we are due. I don't know, uh, Ryan, I feel like reckoning is the right word because I think we are due for some kind of rebalancing here. And I think the resistance to that is going to come from a lot of unexpected places. Um, and and it's going to be tough to overcome because I think a lot of people cannot handle the idea of having to listen to somebody that they, you know, consider, uh, yeah. honestly, in many cases, yeah. just straight up beneath them. Yeah. We're coming up near the end of our hour. Uh, Tina, it's been great to have you on. I'm glad we could put this together. This has been great. Uh, do you have final thoughts to uh, close us out on? Uh, you're the expert here. <laughs> um, I, yeah, let's, you know, let's keep, 
there, yeah, I mean, we are as a society pretty screwed. Um, but I, I just, you know, I can't, I can't having gone through what we went through the last couple of years, I can't stop, um, influencing as much as I can and trying to just get, you know, people to just do what, what's right and just listen. And, um, you know, in my role, I will not be doing the blame game. Um, that's what I can offer to my little corner of society. All right. Once again, thank you. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, for this week, I'm Ryan. I was Noah. And Tina. <laughs> and this is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>